You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. So Martin, you'll notice on, even on this call, we've got AI involved with Fathom taking notes on our conversation. And it seems like every five minutes, I'm getting an advertisement from somewhere around a new AI tool. And we're currently using Bard, Bing, uh, ChatGPT, Jasper, Jupiter, and a variety of other things that about a month ago, no one was talking about. So I'm <laughs> trying to... Trying to keep my head above water and, and make sense of it all, make sure we're using it one so that it's effective, but two responsibly. How about you? Yeah, well, you can't pick up much by way of the higher education media anywhere in the world at the moment, or access it from anywhere in the world without seeing issues of of what does generative AI mean for students' practice, for learning, for the way that universities might be conceived in the future. And the word that comes through on that loud and clear as a primary byproduct of it is the concerns that the whole sector has around integrity so academic integrity in terms of students practice when they have such tools around and available to them has become a very dominant feature and it seems like we're up to our own devices in terms of what we deem uh, to be demonstrating integrity and not i know amazon have said in terms of self-publishing they're not publishing anything that is generatively ai um, developed Um, so that's their principle and we've got some of our clients uh, making other decisions in terms of the accept the, the integration and adoption of AI. I'm sure that we're going to start seeing governance and responsible AI principles in place more universally. Would I be? Would that be correct? Well, I think we will. I mean, I think I think um, the academic world and the higher education world globally is coming to terms with this in. And I think the best way that they do that is in partnership with uh, providers of technology. In Australia, we've had um, our industry minister, of course, Ed Husick, announce a, a review of the governance arrangements and what, what what the regulatory response should be around the adoption of AI in business more generally in Australia. And I think many in the higher education sector are waiting to see what the pan you know what the panning out of that might be. I think we've got a. We've got to find the right way of taking leadership and ownership of these issues ourselves and as universities leading the way. And we can't govern our way and ban our way out of the adoption of new technology, but we can't succumb to a complete loss and lack of integrity in the way that the sector and different people use it in the future. There's got to be some leadership response that means that we get on top of all of that. Probably on two fronts, the majority of our work at the moment is in organizational readiness for AI. And that that conversation leads very quickly into organizational responsibility and accountability for the outcome of AI, which makes me think about times gone by, actually, where we're all sort of living in a in a broader principle-based ecosystem that regardless of what your culture says, you're going to do things that benefit you and in in many instances if it's a commercial organization and if we are a typical over ambitious uh middle-aged white person you may or may not it's a very controversial comment but may or may not do things that are in line with the culture you may be following things that meet your personal agenda well i think the scientific world and the and the world of um study and research and and learning has been particularly um exposed to some of this in in generations now and is and has a light shone on it particularly 
strongly right now because of this emergence of technology. And this is a really nice segue to some of the ideas that our guest today has been able to share with us around how we um, address issues of integrity in terms of how we assess research, how that me- what that means in terms of how we perceive and present universities and what it does in terms of how we publish and make accessible and um, attribute quality to research and how it's published. So, Martin, why don't you tell us a little bit about our guest this week? Yeah, I will. Our guest this week is Ginny Barber. She's the director of Open Access Australasia. She's um, been a medical editor and publisher. But she's um, of interest to us because she's been, for the last five years, the vice chair of a global organisation called DORA, the Declaration on Research Assessment, which has just turned 10 um, years old as a global organisation that's been trying to as the scientific community take control of and ownership of the issue of how we judge research and how we prevent gaming of the system. Well, let's hear from Ginny just after this short message from our sponsor. Enjoying the HeadX podcast? You should check out The Thought Bubble, a podcast series where cross-disciplinary experts from all around the world share insights about emerging technologies and all the ways in which they can transform how we teach, learn, evaluate and experience higher education. Hear from Google, Meta, Holland IQ, KPMG, Duolingo, and more. Find the Thought Bubble wherever you listen to your podcasts. Today's guest on HeadX is adjunct professor Ginny Barber. And Ginny is the director of Open Access Australasia and editor in chief of the Medical Journal of Australia. She's been a real pioneer in academic publishing and the causes of open access in both the advocacy that she makes and the practice roles that she's performed, having held prominent editorial positions on PLOS following her time editing The Lancet. She's also vice chair of the team leading the global organisation DORA, which turned 10 years old recently, having taken on the responsibility to advance practical and robust approaches to global research assessment. Ginny, welcome to HeadX. Thank you. Great to be here. And Ginny, from your roots, and I believe your roots to be as a postdoctoral medical researcher, you've spent then a lifetime in medical research, publishing and editing, and have very much sought to align your efforts with the perspective of science and of research institutions and the causes that many short short share for open access. I wonder, where did the principles of doing that and the values you hold about research publishing How did they become established with you and how have they then developed through your career? That's a great question. So um, I got into medical publishing by accident. Um, Often it's not a career that people think about going into. Um, And my background, as you say, is in medical research, but I also trained as a doctor before that. So I had a real interest in um, research generally as it informed medical practice. And um, my, my views, I guess, came from the fact that I believe that the whole purpose of journals and publishing is to disseminate research. Now, that kind of sounds like a slightly uh, strange thing to say, but one of the things that came out of that was um, back in um, 2003, which was towards the end of the time that I was at The Lancet, it became pretty clear that the commercial publishers were quite interested in not disseminating research. They were kind of fond of their subscription model, uh, closed access, and just as organisations like the Public Library of Science were beginning to get off the ground and with this idea that you know research should be made open for everybody the the big publishers were pushing back on that and i i my kind of real belief in the importance of um of 
open access publishing and particularly the sort of open science more generally now came from the fact that you know in the end what you do as a journal is you disseminate research and if you're not doing that effectively to the most in the most efficient way that you can do at the time why why you're in business so i actually left the lancet and i was uh, to, to join plus medicine well actually i was one of the three editors that started plus medicine because i was so fascinated and inspired by that new model so that's kind of where my principles came from Fascinating. And um, that whole area of open access publishing is one that I, I I see myself and I know it triggers really strong passions among editors and researchers globally across many disciplines now. And um, what, what events and occurrences have you encountered that have triggered you to develop, hold and advocate for the positions that you now strongly take on this subject? Can you share some of those with us? And, you know, as I said, I think that it was the one thing that triggered me was when I was at the Lancet, it became really obvious to me. There was one particular paper that I remember um, handling where it became very clear it was important. It needed to be fully open because without that, its interpretation would be it would be badly misinterpreted. And um, and that wasn't going to happen. So that was one of the things that made me think that we needed to think systematically about change. But I also think that there's. Um, you know, we need to be thinking about how we disseminate research beyond just academics. So the idea of making research more available to people, non-specialists, and that again was something at that time that the, the the commercial publishers were really not thinking about. They were thinking about how do you, you know, sell your subscriptions to a relatively small number of academic researchers. So I felt at that time that I was really interested in thinking about the bigger picture about dissemination. And that, that really came from my experiences of, first working in a commercial pub publisher, but then being able to explore what we could do with that if we worked at a non-commercial publisher that was very principle based. And that, that really, that, so PLOS was really a defining part of my career. You're articulating there a feeling that I think is shared amongst many scientists and probably adopted in the um, views of many institutions that there's, there's, there's been over a long time a developing and stronger sense of cynicism towards the position of some, if not all, commercial academic publishers as being really powerful and maybe increasingly powerful in their hold over scientists looking to publish and make their work more broadly available. And, and indeed, against the position that inst institutions seek to hold of looking to acquire the collections for their students and staff to access at reasonable cost to make them available to their communities. What would your views be with how your career has developed and the roles that you've had towards what you think of the position that is held by commercial publishers and where we're currently up to in 2023 and making science public and affordable? Yeah, I, th I think one of the big problems is that most academics actually just don't know the, the hold that commercial publishers have over the, the publishing of their work. It's a, it's a fundamental problem and we know that you know from some really good work that was done um a, about five years ago there's a great paper called the oligopoly of academic publishing in the digital era era and what it shows is that um a very small number of publishers control a very large number of journals so if you look at most specialty journals for example a large majority of them are published by um these one of these big publishers now that's not necessarily a bad thing um provided that you understand the limits that that imposes on you and i think that what i see is a, a phrase that i kind of come back to time and time again is this concept of the need for a bibliodiverse academic research system so that means that you have multiple opportunities and multiple ways to publish your research so that means might mean small commercial publishers it might big big commercial publishers might suit you for a particular type of work 
um, academic-led journals, you know, ones that are supported by universities, and also the role, for example, of repositories in all of that. So I think that one of the problems that we have right now is that there is an unusual hold that publishers have within the system. It's a bit like, you know, in Australia, you know, the two big um, supermarkets have a hold over our food industry in a way that many people would say is not necessarily healthy for the whole of the um, of, of the research of the health ecosystem. So I see that as the problem, and I see that one of the roles that I of people like me to do is to really point that out to academics so they understand when they're publishing, say, with a big commercial journal, what that really means for them. Um, and linked to that, of course, is the you know the under a, a really big thing that's happening at the same time is the data collection that all these publishers are doing at the same time. So every time we read something at a journal, you can absolutely be sure that that information is being captured by those publishers. And we know that there's some really quite disturbing um, handling of that data that's happening as well. So it's not a simple transaction that you publish with a, 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 pub, a journal and that's a simple, you know, that's all that everyone's getting out of it. There's actually a whole whole set of um, circumstances that are happening behind, behind that. And I think that it's worth academics understanding that when they publish. Well, you're seeking to help more and more academics understand that from the work that you're doing and beyond the role that you have in leading Open Access Australasia. You also hold a position as as global vice chair of something called DORA, um, which recently celebrated its 10th year. For those that don't know, what is DORA and what is your role in it? And what's it achieved in 10 years for scientists taking a leadership role in assessing research quality within this commercial and policy environment that's seen many global developments culminating in those of those last 10 years. What's DORA? So DORA is the Declaration on Research Assessment. Um, its full name was the San Francisco Re Declaration on Research Assessment. And it was actually came out of a meeting at the end of 2012 um, in uh, the at the meeting of the um, ASCB, um, the American Society of Cell Biology in San Francisco. And a group of editors got together and they decided to have a meeting to talk about the problem of impact factors. And out of that came a, a declaration, which they they all signed. I th and that was launched in um, May of 2013. And uh, indeed, um, literally last week, that was the that was the 10th anniversary of that declaration going online. Um, I would say that there would have been a lot of work thinking about the problem with journal impact factors and other journal based metrics before that. When I was at PLOS in 2006, we we're about to get our first impact factor at PLOS Medicine and we became that was the first time I became really aware of the problems of journal based metrics because we were a journal that was trying to be really revolutionary we we're trying to publish on you know for example diseases that were not very prevalent in say um you know the northern hemisphere and we became clear that we were going to be sort of punished for that because those journals didn't get those articles didn't get highly cited and wouldn't contribute to a high impact factor and that was the first time I really understood the the real problems with judging a journal in that way and we, we were quite horrified about it we wrote, wrote an editorial called the impact factor game um and you know it, it I, my position hasn't really changed since then um but dora so it was a declaration and then towards the end about five years later it became clear that although it had a lot of signatories so people could sign up to it and organizations could sign it it wasn't really able to get much traction because there was no uh, funding associated with it. So Stephen Curry, who's the current chair of DORA, a group, small group of other people, Bernd Pulvera from EMBO and Mark Patterson, who was at eLife, got together and they managed to persuade a group of funders to invest in it. 
and that allowed Dora to hire its staff. So we've had a couple of programme directors, Anna Hatch and our acting directors, Hayley Hazlitt, and those two people have really led the the kind of the activities that Dora has done. And that's ranged from everything through to uh, developing communities globally, developing resources. We run a great, we have, for example, a, um, a, a couple of funder discussion groups. There's one in Asia Pacific and one in um, on the in this on the other side of the world. And the development of sort of concrete tools that can help think about research assessments, such as, for example, the narrative CV, which is a different way of thinking about academic researchers. Um, there's a whole program called Project Tara, which is looking at developing a dashboard of um, tools that people can think about. And the most interesting thing, I think, for uh, people and organisations that are beginning to think about research assessment is um, a set of case studies. So if you're an institution that's thinking about how you might change research assessment, you can look to see the case studies that are posted on the site. And it's become a sort of great set of resources on, you know, for anyone from individuals to institutions to funders thinking about changing research assessment. Narrative CV, there's an expression that I haven't heard before. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that means and how that works? Yeah, so if, you, um, if you're a, a, your average researcher and, you know, you've been researching for 20 years, I bet your CV is probably um, many pages long. And this is a, f a fundamental problem if you're, if you're trying to really um, judge people um, in a sort of similar way. So the idea behind a narrative CV is that it's not just a list of all your research publications. Um, it may it has a much smaller group of publications, so usually five or ten, um, but there's a narrative around those. So why and you're allowed to, for example, pick out what are the five most important papers you've published in the last five years or the ten most important in the most ten years, it can, but not every paper you've ever published. And associated with that is also your other contributions to academic research. Um, and so this isn't Dora is in the process of thinking about this. There are some of the funders, for example, in New Zealand, they are also developing that. The NHMRC in Australia is looking at um, a different model for CVs. And uh, a couple, um, the, in fact, in the Royal Society in the UK, they've been doing that for quite some time. So it's a, basically a way of having a more rounded approach and assessment of a researcher's contribution rather than just a list of papers. As I hear you describe it, the sense that I get of that, that work then is that it's trying to think about the fact that different people are, different researchers are different in how they approach work, what their priorities are and how they measure their own contribution and, and that you're trying to help them find different ways of communicating that rather than they're all resorting to a common formula. Is, is, is that what I hear? That's exactly right. And, and, you know, and we know, of course, that, you know, if you're a researcher in the humanities, you know, just for example, the citations for your papers will be much less than if you're a researcher working in biochemistry. Um, and if you're, you know, again, if you're if you're working in the creative arts, you know, how do you how do you kind of describe a contribution such as a film script or a, or a performance as being part of your research output? So it's it's much it's intended to be a much richer way of describing um, that your research activities, but also things such as, you know, what are you, what's your contribution to running a research group? And you know, what's your, um, you know, your academic service within your university? You know, your um, mentoring activities, including all of those within a, a CV, as opposed to just, as I said, a list of papers. So some of the other things that our strategy documents and our leaders say are important, but sometimes don't measure. Is that the case? 
or, or don't yeah don't get captured i mean that's exactly right and and some and the, the truth is of course everybody is thinking about this to some extent but this is an attempt to sort of make it a bit more systematic what we're really aware of though is as and there's been as dora's been thinking about this is as you implement something like this, you've got to make sure that you don't have unintended consequences. So, you know, you don't get people to try and game this in another way or you don't disadvantage, you know, young young researchers. And so trying to have some sort of format that captures all that is part of what the narrative CV is about. It, it strikes me that there appear to be some parallels with the, the history of journal impact factors and the metrics that we've applied to journals and other publications and the role that commercial publishers have played in that um, history and the history of university rankings and the place of other commercial publishers and ranking companies in promoting those measurements and metrics and gaining benefit from them. Do, do you see parallels between the issues with research assessment and journal impact factors and rankings and the broader issues, if they indeed are broader, of how we how we measure universities, how we compare them each other and with each other, and what the role of other commercial players are in that process. Yeah, I think there's a there's a really direct comparison. You know, it's, it's you know essentially these are commercial products. You know, there's you know the, the impact journal impact factor is owned by a commercial company. It's changed hand. You know, it's kind of moved across companies from time to time, and it is essentially it's a commercial product. There are other journal other journal metrics that are exactly the same. If you want to look up the journal impact factor at your, you know, right now, you have to have a subscription to a product that allows you to do that. So it is it is absolutely, you know, it's a commercial product, and the same is true for these rankings. You know, each of them um, support the revenues, and certainly the to some extent, the agendas of the organizations that run them. You know, I'm thinking, for example, some of the ones that are run by the nature journals, you know, it's hard not to conclude that that supports um, what, you know, the nature journals long-term aims. Now, I'm not saying that there's any uh, way that these are skewed or sort of um, manipulated, but, you know, it doesn't hurt that there's a nature name or, you know, for example, Times Higher Ed name associated with a ranking that has a benefit for those companies. And I think that we have to just, be really aware that when we're saying, you know, what these rankings are, to understand where they're coming from and who owns them and who benefits from them, and and it's not always clear to me that that's the universities, and it's certainly not always the case of the journals that that benefit from the from the journal impact factor rankings, for example. So come on then, you've you've been vice chair of Dora. I don't know if you've been vice chair for all of the ten years. Maybe you can clarify that in the answer to the the second question I'll ask. You must have learned lots about the issues of getting international agreements for being being devout and, and sticking to your principles of why this is being done in contrast to why commercial publishers are doing this. What, what, what are the lessons that you've learned from the role that you've played in Dora as its vice chair that you think are shareable and relevant to anyone giving some consideration to university rankings and how they might change to be more objective in the light of their relationship with their commercial publishers? Yeah, so I haven't been chair, vice chair of DORA for all of that time. I joined the steering committee about, um, it was called the advisory group about five years ago. Um, and then we had a bit of a reorganisation and um, Stephen was, has been the chair for that time, but I I, I uh, became vice chair. And we now, I would just say, one of the things I'd really like to say about DORA is we have a, we have a 28 member steering committee, which is truly global. 
and across all disciplines and we have everyone from early career researchers through to very you know esteemed academics so we've tried to kind of have a good cross-section of people that are involved in dora um but i guess what i've learned is that um you know it's really hard to make change we know that don't we you know we, we we're talking about some things that are really embedded within research culture with regard to journal metrics journal impact factors and same for university rankings they're very much embedded within you know the systems that we all operate in i think the kind the key role that we've had at dora certainly in, is is to show that there are different ways of doing things that we don't have to accept the status quo we're not here to just be you know to be negative completely about the current systems but we do want to point out the, the problems with it so for example most people don't even know what the journal impact factor is how it's actually calculated and that's another thing that's quite interesting about the the rankings for universities they are incredibly opaque you know if we, i mean i have no, <clears throat> no idea how the times higher ed does their rankings or the um you know the the nature ones they're not open for scrutiny so i think one of the concerns that we see is that having a, an opaque metric is really problematic and so I think that, you know, one of the things that we do in, with, with DORA, what we do with um, when we're thinking about, you know, journal, um, university rankings is to have these conversations all the time, talk to people about them. So they understand whenever they quote, say, an impact factor or they quite, quote a, uh, a ranking, they understand what that means and whether or not that serves their purposes. Because quite often when you start talking to people about it, they realize that actually it doesn't serve their purposes very well at all. And that there are better, you can think about better ways of doing it. And this is one of the pieces of feedback that we've had about Dora is that people really want to think about what are the better ways of assessing research. We're not just trying to chuck something out. We're trying to think of a better new assessment. So that comes into something like the um, the the narrative CV that I was mentioning that may well be something that is a positive tool that people can use instead of current um, systems. We're talking a lot about research, and Dora is a, a declaration on research assessments. And there are some ag arguments in the broader considerations within universities about rankings that they they have a very strong focus on what are the more easily measurable and comparable aspects of research quality and performance. And indeed, might be in the argument and the viewpoint of some too research focused altogether, and in doing in being so, might be inappropriate to the broader and more diversified missions of some of our universities to their different local contexts. Hmm. What is your take on all of that? Yeah, I think that that's you know, there's nothing wrong inherently with measuring things. I'm not. I think that's one thing that is really just worth reiterating and there are things that we absolutely should measure so for example you know student satisfaction is a great example of what a university should care about you know the quality of teaching is perceived by students you know whether students feel safe on campus i mean you know there's a lot of discussion around you know sexual abuse on campus you know i think that's something that universities should absolutely be measured on um you know what's the retention of indigenous students within the university there are some really clear things that universities should promote and support um but having rankings that are just based for example on you know the the metrics say of the papers that's a small proportion of people published that's a really bad way of measuring a, a university particularly because as we know universities often try and sort of bring in researchers to get that number up so that's not even a reflection of the long the, of the depth of a university's research so i think that you need to really i think universities at their best are a good reflection of their local communities and their local research priorities and that's what i would like to see journal rankings being 
thinking about. And so having meaningful ones that for those individual uh, universities, but also ones that are meaningful for, say, the students and even the staff, you know, great example is, you know, staff satisfaction. Do people enjoy working there? That's quite a good measure of what universities should be thinking about. I don't think that's included in many university rankings that, that I've seen. I don't think it's included in any, is it? It's um, And um, so if we wanted to have more appropriate measures of university performance in the way that you've described there for for more diversified and relevant purposes and missions of, of universities, we might need new ranking systems then or new measures that are more nuanced to those missions and to local context. With your five years working within Dora and the 10 years of the wider organisation, what can you suggest of how you could imagine that different way of developing measures for university performance and ranking how might that happen and what would it take? I think I think there's some um, yeah, there's some areas where we can look to where uh, there's some areas of research um, assessment that are already become kind of becoming important. So one example, for example, one, one, one issue, for example, is around open science. So, you know, we're seeing an increasing move to open science, the UNESCO recommendation on open science, which was um, um, adopted in November 2021 comes out with some really important principles about you know the expectations of of what open science should look like and its importance in the sort of the global um global research system so i think that you know measuring um universities against their support for open science would be one that i would like to see and that's one of the principles that's also included within um, the hong kong principles and they were a set of principles that were developed at the world congress for research integrity um, and were they were published in uh, 2019. I was part of the group that developed those, so I've kind of got an interest in them. But they talk about the need to um, uh, assess or the, the opportunity to assess researchers on more than just, again, the, the, the journals they publish, but for example, you know, there's um, what they do in, in their universities in relation to service, you know, open science principles, that kind of thing. I would love to see that as part of, you know, what's, what's considered uh, a ranking system. Other things would be, you know, relevance, local relevance in research. So, you know, in Australia, obviously, you know, really important support for um, uh, First Nations research and, and support for First Nations researchers. That is something that, you know, could be weaved into the, the principles that any university chooses to be to be assessed by. So I think there's some really specific ones that um, what we have right now, the problem with the current journal, sorry, the current university ranking systems is that they're one, yeah, they're one size fits all. And, and we know that that really doesn't really reflect for many universities, particularly universities that are not research intensive, it really doesn't suit them very well in, you know, in, in, in the activities that they actually do. So something that's locally relevant and, and meaningful and supports the principles of those universities is what I'd like to see. You've um, raised some really important issues there with regard to the different sorts of universities that we have around the world and bringing that back to Australia, where we both are now. We we have a regulatory environment that requires all 40 or so of our universities to all have ubiquitous um, research strength across all of its diverse disciplines. And um, I don't know if this is core to your area of expertise and experience, but I'm sure you must have some view of the, the sort of policy settings and the broader regulatory framework for our universities. Do, do you see barriers for that that you've experienced within DORA for research assessment or that you imagine to be relevant to 
breaking free from an environment of of the global commercial university rankings. Is there something that we could do in resetting policy that would help on this journey? I, I think the single most important thing, to be honest, is having leadership from the very top. Um, this is something that we've seen repeatedly, you know, so, for example, with the adoption of open science and open access practices in the UK, in the Europe, you know, now, for example, in the US, the, you know, the US White House has come out with a statement on, you know, open science. That sends a signal from the very top that this is important. I see this as something that, you know, leadership from our two big funders, the ARC, the NHMRC, you know, from the science minister, from the health minister, education minister, all of these groups have a really important role in signaling that they see it as important because Dora has had success, I think, because we've been quite a grassroots organization. We've been able to have conversations at you know many levels at the grassroots. We've had you know success with funders, for example, many of those have adopted it. But what we haven't seen at a huge level until relatively recently is very high level leadership from at sort of a national and international level. Now, again, for example, in the open science uh, recommendation that UNESCO um, adopted, they actually mentioned research assessment as something that needs to be um, be um, changed to actually to promote open science more generally, that the current system does not actually support research assessment. The current system of research assessment works against the principles of open science. And I, I think that's true. So I think that really high level national, international leadership is key to sort of changing the settings here. Well, we've of course had a review of our own ARC in Australia recently, and we're in the middle of a university's accord process that I, I'm sure you must have some awareness of that. Um, in one case, the ARC review has relaxed the previous commitment to research assessment as a as a government and a, as an administrative task, and and is inviting other ways of that being considered by the sector itself. And we have a a university's accord process that's looking at the diversity of our universities. Do, do you foresee a situation coming out of some of the policy review that we have going on at the moment where Australian universities might get the opportunity to collectively to be able to build a way of opting out of or dispensing with universities in a similar way to how Dora has built the foundations for us all to let go of journal impact factors? I think it, I think it will at the very least prompt a rethinking of it. And, you know, Open Access Australasia, we put a submission into the review of the ARC Act and we talked exactly about this need for the, um, the the need to coordinate policy across the big funders. I think this, you know, one of the problems of right now, for example, just a practical thing is that having different policy settings at different funders is really difficult. And, you know, the NHMRC is a signatory of DORA, the ARC is not. You know, what does that mean practically for researchers that are funded by both the ARC and the NHMRC? So the whole whole issue about kind of aligning policy, which I think would really help in this space. But I also think that, um, you know, having having, you know, the funders should not, in my view, <laughs> and we've sort of said this, would should not just be funders of research. I think people look to the funders for leadership. You know, there's a great example of the work that the NHMRC has done in in, you know, in changing the the settings around uh, funding for um, for women um, in research. That has been very important. That's a great high level leadership again they've also been they've supported um you know open access to a very large extent i think people are really looking for leadership at that level and i think that's that's where the opportunities lie in you know kind of 
coming out with a, a policy that is really principles based and then providing leadership because then I think the universities will be comfortable in thinking about how they themselves respond to um, research assessment and university rankings they don't just have to follow the kind of the, the systems that we've always had in place in the past. So for Dora then turning 10 and you for having spent half of its life in such a prominent role you sound like you're seeing this as a time of opportunity of leadership of our of our system and leadership of our funding bodies and indeed if I heard you right the leadership of our different institutions to really grasp the net, the nettle, learn the the lessons of, and bring about the sort of change in research university rankings that has been able to be built from this community of Dora across our journals and and research assessment. I mean, Ginny, just bringing this to a close, are you hopeful of the future, and are you enjoying leading global efforts to redefine how research assessment is conducted globally from a base here in Australia? <laughs> it's it's very funny being in Australia. I mean, I love being in Australia. I'm a I've discovered I'm a huge fan of hot weather in Brisbane. Um, and what I have less enjoyed is the horrendous time difference that we all suffer from when you're trying to collaborate with people internationally. Um, I think that one of the things I have managed to do is to make sure that we have these conversations often in times in time zones that suit people in this world, because I do think people in Australia and New Zealand have often not been able to participate fully simply because of the fact that conversations happen in a European or American time zone. But I'm acutely aware that we are much more privileged, for example, than people say in Africa or in some parts of you know, Southeast Asia where they're not included in the conversation at all, never mind at whatever time zone. So yes, I, I'm really passionate about this. I think that it's, um, you know, I've, as I said right at the very beginning, I believe passionately in the, you know, the, the job of journals, the job of, of, of universities is to, you know, publish and is to disseminate, do and disseminate good research. And I think that if we don't think closely about how, you know, research assessment works, then we, we really run the risk of potentially, um, you know, undermining all of our good efforts in that area. So it's something I'm very passionate about. There's a great group of people involved in it. And, you know, one of the things I've enjoyed is, is being part of a, a really global community that's thinking hard about these issues. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great opportunity. And you clearly are thinking hard about it. You've been doing it for a, a good while. And Dora has now come of age, at least at one stage of, of its life. And for, for the contributions that you've made to it and for sharing its story with us here today, and for giving us some really interesting pointers to what can be learned from that to revisit the same sort of predicament that universities have with regard to other people making rankings of it. Thank you so much for being our guest on HeadX today, Ginny Barber. Thanks very much. It's been a great pleasure. So, Martin, you've been in the industry for, I don't know, what do we joke, 75 years? A long, long time. Um, you've seen seen a lot of change and you've also seen business as usual, as we'd call it. So I'm sure you've got a raft of views about what Ginny has said. Well, I, I think it's great to hear about Dora. I, I'd, I'd been aware of it before recently, but it's come to the fore for me with its 10th anniversary. And it's come for, to the fore with me with the debate that's been happening around university rankings and whether they are a fair and objective and a justifiable way of really the higher education sector outsourcing and um, delegating responsibility for judging quality to commercial publishers and commercial rankings companies. I think I'm, I've been staggered with how much recent commentary there's been on 
the extent to which that's happened and the validity of doing that and the extent to which that creates a lacking in opportunity, an unfair and a potentially gameable approach to research quality. So, so that for me has been something that's come to the fore at the same time where there's been so much debate around integrity. And the focus of that debate in the higher education world has been on academic integrity and students' practice and our need as universities to try and find a way of governing that. Whereas the broader issues around research integrity have been called into question by some really quite um, high-profile investigations of university presidents, particularly in the US in a number of notable cases, and whether some of their history of publication practice in a very gameable system for um, some of those activities is is questionable and 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 something that needs that the sector itself needs to take control of. And Martin, is this something new? Is this something that we are only becoming aware of because we've got better investigative tools like AI? Or what what is it that's bringing this to the surface now? Or is this just an unspoken truth that we've sort of lived with? I, th I think our ability to um, to assess and to be aware of this has become more acute. Our ability and our willingness to shine a light on it and to expose it has risen to the the fore. But I think the the stakes have become so high. The stakes in terms of becoming top of the rankings, becoming top of the citation list, the publishing more than other people um, mm. and being no, being seen to and known to have become so high in the competitive environments of universities that that combined with the fact that we haven't applied our own rigor of our scientific disciplines to set the rules for how that got, that could be done has left us exposed. And I think for me, that shows real big problems with leadership and with culture in our broader ecosystem of are we going to take responsibility for integrity of our own practices in the same way that in the emergence of AI, we seem to want to control the integrity of all of our students. I think we've got to look at, you know, we've got to, we, we might be in danger of a pot calling the kettle black here. Look, it's interesting, isn't it, Martin? There's always two sides to this. The well, whether you want to call it misconduct or not, but a deviation from best practice or pro-social activity. And and that in this instance is a there's a bit of a spotlight on student behavior, as you mentioned. But on the other side of that, you do have leadership behavior and leadership integrity. If we look outside of this particular sector and you move into the world of the Royal Commissions, for instance, uh, some of the decision-making practices and the the cultural leadership of the most senior executives of some of our banks um, haven't actually been up to scratch. So you've got this, this double whammy or this twofold experience here where you have the gross misconduct being uncovered inside organizations like Wells Fargo or closer to home, um, Westpac, for instance. And then you reflect on those particular leaders in there. Now, sure, the leader sets the culture and directs and shapes the culture and what they do, but their actual personal practices have also been called into account to some extent. So I'm not too sure if we're looking at exactly the same thing here or if this is a little bit different. I just certainly don't know how the sector handles this outside of a commercial mainstream Royal Commission environment. Is this something that we just talk about on HeadX or is this something that becomes, you know, a, a talking piece for across national media? Well, I, I think the whole point of having this episode this week, Carl, and taking the conversation in this way is that 
what what Ginny shows us is that as a result of her engagement with Dora, the scientific community can intervene in what otherwise are commercial imperatives and commercial practices and really change the way that things are done and change the practice of the sector. And they've done that now in a very influential way with journal impact factors and the, the strange game play, playing that that had introduced. I think there's an open question here about what is the future of university rankings and whether there aren't better ways of the sector itself and its scientific community finding ways of judging quality across different disciplines relative to opportunity and to removing the game-playing opportunities that otherwise call into question the research integrity of the sector. And I really applaud what Dora has done and encourage us to have a wider discussion and debate around whether there are lessons from there that we can apply to university rankings. Martin, it occurs to me we're talking about rankings from the sector in a very traditional manner, and yet much of our podcast has focused on uh, big tech and ed tech and other emerging education leaders that I'm not too sure actually buy into the ranking system or see that as something that's actually even important. Well, I think you could well be right there, Carl, and that, that creates another opportunity for us to revisit and reappraise, um, not only from within the sector for our own purposes, where the rankings are the are the be all and the end all, and the the you know the 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 right way for us to judge research quality, but whether they're fit for purpose in terms of those that want to make use of that information. We often say we have to stick with the rankings because international students are using them to make their decisions to come to Australia or not, and if so, where to go to in Australia. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of evidence starting to be generated that there are other things that are more important, and I think we should pay attention to that and and respond in a mature and leaderly way in leading the debate of what is really good quality in higher education. That's all we have time for on this episode of EdX. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl.